All right, we got here James Van Ellswick, serial entrepreneur, founder of what seems like 20 million businesses, but currently operating five businesses right now. What's going on, James? What's up, guys? How you doing today? Very good. Thank you so much for coming on, man. To give the audience some clarity on how we met James, uh, our business partner, Claudio, was set to go out and speak at this event called GeekX. And James is the founder or co-founder of GeekX. And it was at an awesome event, very exclusive private event at uh, a house in Orange County, California. And with that, Claudio couldn't make it. So we got tapped in to go on and we met James and we went out there, had a really good time, connected with some awesome people, got to see Tom Bilyeu speak, which was awesome. James runs a tight ship, an awesome event. And I know you guys just had some more events after that, but that's just some context on how we met. Thanks so much for coming on, man. Totally. And thank you very much for coming out and speaking at the event. Absolutely, man. Thanks for the the opportunity. So let's dive right into it, man. Tell us a little bit more about your background, yourself, where you're at now, where you're headed. Give us the whole nine yards here. It's a long background. I started out my entrepreneurial journey and I, I started when I had employee number one, which was my brother. I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. My grandparents, great grandparents were immigrants. My grandfather, who's my role model, all this started a, I started out opening a butcher shop with my great grandfather. They actually at one point sold things out of horse carriages. Uh, then they got an actual physical location. Then they had a number of locations that my grandfather went on to own a number of florists. He dropped out of school at 12. And by the time he was 18, he owned a chain of florists and a butcher shop and was already pretty rich. Decided he wanted to help people and went in, uh, opened up a nursing home uh, business basically, because he wanted to care for people. He wanted to make money and care for people. And this was like kind of the role model I saw of him like building businesses. So I wanted to do it as well. Started out a tennis racket stringing business where I would, I played tennis. So I would string rackets for other people. And then when it came time to the state championships, I noticed like I couldn't string and play matches. So I would string when I didn't have matches and I brought on my brother to string while I was playing. So we would lose like operational efficiency. And then that kind of continued out, you know, throughout that time, I've been through so many different businesses. I've owned restaurants, distribution businesses, current and call centers, large scale call centers, I would say it was 2008 to 2013, hundreds of people on the phone selling different financial services products. And I was exposed to internet marketing via some of my vendors. I was doing advertising on radio and television, direct mail, and some Google search. And one of my lead vendors, and obviously in a call center business, you know, the, the lifeline of your business is the, the leads that you're calling on. He showed me the money he was making using Facebook ads, right? And this is back before there was a mobile news feed, obviously before Instagram. It was just the little ads on the right-hand side. And I realized that he was probably making the same amount of money as I was with his margin by himself and one developer. And I had to have hundreds of people touch my cash for it, hit my pocket. So I decided to be done with it. That call center was going out of business, savagely out of business. I had told my CFO, who was actually also a friend, like, look, once I'm down to 70 Gs, do not let me stuff this in, right? Like I, I had started out with a bankroll at that time of about 770,000 was like the starting bankroll for the business. I'd already been a millionaire, I'd already been broke, I'd already been a millionaire, already been broke, and had saved up 770 Gs to launch this new business. 
And I just told them when we did the cash flow projections for the business, it was a business built on subscription. So we would get like $350 up front and then $50 a month, right? So after the cost of OPEX and marketing and sales agents, whatever, I would be negative for a year. But then once I got over the top, it would hockey stick. We always talk about the hockey stick progression of the, the revenue and profit. I made the mistake of not factoring in a lot of the things that could go wrong. And I got screwed on some different things with, with the credit card processing, et cetera. So I'm losing my ass. 70 G's was my, my cutoff point. I had 700 in and I told him, don't ever let me put in the last 70. And I shoved the 70 in and I borrowed. So at the end of the call center, I literally was homeless. I just downsized that and I would was sleeping in my car. And I always talk about like sleeping in a, a bad decision. I had a beautiful 760 BMW and I was like sleeping in a least problem, like a bad decision. Like I could have had that cash for other things. I would shower at a gym, like I would get a gym membership and I would shower there in the morning and I would put a smiley face on and try to rally the troops, you know, do pump up talks in the morning, everything, keep it going. And I struggled through that for a while. And I left that business, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and decided, all right, I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to offshore my repeat billing, like the clients I still have on subscription. I'm going to take it from my US call center, move it to a South American call center and bounce. And I'm going to learn how to do Facebook ads. Since I was so low on cash, I figured I need to move somewhere cheap while I'm learning how to do it. I moved to South America. I had a thousand dollars in my bank account and $200 in cash in my wallet. That was my emergency. Like I still have the $200 in my wallet, the exact same $200. I've never taken it out. Fortunately, never needed to use it and learned how to run Facebook ads and started to make really good money on Facebook ads, paid off my debt, started to stack up my cash again and decided to kind of formalize what I was doing by myself running ads, opened a company in Israel with my partner. Israel is really an epicenter for marketing and technology. Um, so I opened an office there. We still have staff there. And we started to utilize Facebook, Google, TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube to make money, either for ourselves or other people. I still have that business. I opened an event business because I wanted to learn. I'm a huge believer in being the dumbest person in the room. Like this, I think is a concept that's been continual in my growth is just being an eternal beginner, like just always be in the process of learning. Somebody always does it better when you're doing marketing and you're in a fast changing environment, which our economy also is the ability to learn and pivot is super valuable. I launched the event business so I could learn. There was just shitty learning out there. So I said, like, I'll do my own events. And then if I break even, I can invite the speakers I want to learn from, get other people to pay for the event and kind of learn for free the business like kind of broke even didn't make money for a while eventually it turned into a profitable business during this time i also launched an e-commerce company which i sold after i don't know a year a year and a half we generated a ton of revenue quickly i think we hit like 12 million in rev in like seven or eight months but it was a difficult product to service so i sold that business went back into just strictly marketing And now we're hired for marketing for high scale opportunities. We were brought on to market PPP for self-employed people. We were spending up to, you know, three quarters of a million dollars a day on ads. Our marketing funded more loans than Wells Fargo, Chase, Bank of America combined. And then that kind of died off. 
And we're still just marketing, marketing. And ERC came around, the employee retention tax credits. So I started generating leads for some of the different people in the, in the space. And then eventually got into that, that myself, you know, setting up an entire company to offer this financial service. So I have that going on. My marketing is still going on. And my wife and I are in the process of getting a skincare brand launched, uh, in August, late August or early September. So. That's a that's the long and the that's the long and the short of it. It could go on for hours. There's so many other failed businesses yeah. in there. It's unbelievable. But that's where we're at today. So and this is all over what a 15 year period is Shit, what I was way more than that. I'm 46. Yeah. I started the game when I was 16. So it's like a 30 year entrepreneurial run. Right. And so you you said something I wrote down: millionaire and broke, millionaire and broke, millionaire and broke. A lot of back and forth over these 30 years. Like going back to age 16, James, what are you saying to James about the journey that you, that so James can go on to? Look, I have a crazy journey, so I'll just share it because it is what it is. But I actually had gotten into the marijuana business like early in, in the game and eventually ended up getting busted by the feds, DEA, Homeland Security, whatever, and doing six years in prison for cultivation and importation of marijuana. And the reason I got into that business was I had bad self-esteem, really bad self-esteem. And I didn't believe in myself. And obviously I have a ton of focus. I have a ton of entrepreneurial drive. I had great examples, but I never thought I could be successful at something legitimate. And I think some people feel like they can never be successful. So they don't launch and they're just like, fuck it. I'm stuck. I'm going to be, you know, never make a lot of money in my life. And and I pushed forward into something that was illegal at the time. Obviously I was just early, it's legal as hell now. But when I was, I, I went through all different security levels when I was in prison. And when I was at club fed, a legitimate club fed, I was hanging out with a lot of judges, lawyers, a mayor of a major city. And I, I for the first time realized like, yo, I'm not that dumb. Like here I am with these successful corporate people and I think I'm as smart as them. Um, I can do this, right? And if I had to go back and tell myself at 16 something different, it would be like, yo, believe in yourself, pop a shot, take the risk. If I had had better self-esteem, I never would have made the mistake of doing illegal things and losing that, you know, five years in the, or, yeah, five years in the drug business, more than five years in the drug business. But let's say five years in the drug business, six years in prison. I wouldn't have lost that time on my entrepreneurial journey, you know, because for me, it's a big scoreboard thing. Right. And I feel like I was taken out of the game for all those years. So I lost the chance to be where I want to be at that time. So I would say it's, it's a self-confidence thing. Sure. And, and so what was the, like, was there a pivotal moment where you realized you yourself, like when the, the call center was going under and you needed to make a shift, like what about yourself needed to change? Like James, not just like the entrepreneurial side or the business model, but what about yourself really you needed to change? Sure. Again, there was a confidence factor. I hadn't still really reached the point where I made decisions decisively, right or wrong. I was still wishy-washy. I didn't understand about cost efficiency and I had a, I had a need at a certain point to downsize. I was coming off a winning call center and I was transitioning into a new product line. And I was scared to cut really some amazing management staff. Like I had built a savage team of managers and I did not have the confidence or kind of the clarity there to say, look, I got to cut fat, but I, I even need to cut some muscle. 
I got to let go of some of these people. And I wasn't decisive and I let it linger for too long. And that cost eventually really kind of floated me. So I think a lack of decisiveness was a big deal then. I was also not taking the game seriously. I was partying a lot because at the time I was up a bunch of money and I feel like you got to take this game. And to me, it's fully a game, right? You get to a certain point, you have enough money, you're good, but it's just a big game for me. And there was a certain point I realized professional athletes do not party and then show up for game time the next day and bring their A game. You need to treat yourself like you're an athlete. My life now is dedicated to getting me to highest performance every Monday when I sit at my desk. That's meditation. That is infrared sauna, cold plunge, float on Sundays. It's NAD drips. It's eating well. It's exercising well to make sure that when I sit down at my desk on Monday and I'm ready to play the game, that I'm in just peak performance. I love it. I love it. So now what does playing the game look like for you on a day-to-day basis now? I know you got you got five companies. We didn't even talk about GeekX yet, but what what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, so my day-to-day is always set by my prioritization routines. Sunday night, I review my entire to-do list and kind of rewrite the stuff that's been left over. In the morning when I get up, I write down obviously affirmations and things of this nature that I won't get into, but that it's the three most important things for that day. And the three most important things for that day on a list of a hundred things is based on what my goals are for the quarter. And normally I look at it as like, I need to increase my cash flow. Like I I have cash flow issues I need to fix or I need to get over a certain cash hump. So for one quarter, I'm going to work on decisions that are going to make me money in the short term. If things are rolling and cash flow is good, that quarter is based on building long-term value or brand equity. So when I wake up and I have my three things, This is what it's all dedicated to. And everything else is out. If I have to reschedule meetings, if I need to cancel things, I just do that until those three things are accomplished. My day is usually meetings first thing in the morning. I would say the first three hours of the day, anywhere starting from 7 to 8 a.m. to 10 or 11 is meetings. Then I have gym time, usually around noon. I hit the gym. The afternoon, I start to have more time for my proactiveness. I have a habit of pulling a lot of my own numbers and pulling my own reports so I can live in data. Like I've got people that pull reports for me, but I actually like to like export information from a CRM and dig myself, right? Like digging for me as a business owner, spot checking allows me to find inefficiencies and anomalies that I can kind of dig in deeper with. And then towards the end of the day, I'm taking the analysis that I've made, either talking with people, getting insights. My afternoons are really get information gathering and proactive thoughts. So I'll be like hitting up team members, asking questions, why this, why that, reviewing my data and utilizing that to make plans to push out in the meetings that are coming up. So as you've built out your businesses, how have you gone about identifying your team, finding the right people to put in the right seats for you to kind of have that that CEO type of day? It's a good question. A lot of hire, fire, hire, fire, um, and also potentially hiring when I don't need somebody. Like if I find a gem, I'll get them in there, right? Because to me, like talent is everything. Like I think that You know, like, I don't want to talk shit about college, right? But like, if you find me someone that's good at Excel, that can think and work hard and isn't a piece of shit, I can make them into something great, uh, regardless of their education. So I try to find people like this that just go, 
there's a company called Agora Financial. It's a, you know, over a billion dollars a year in revenue. And I had a chance to speak to one of the founders and it's been doing a billion a year for a long time. And he said, listen, if you want to be successful and make a hundred million dollars, hire smart people. If you want to make a billion, hire competitive people. When I find someone that is smart and competitive and hardworking and not a piece of shit, they're a keeper for me somewhere. And I'll lose on them in the short term if I don't have a perfect home for them, but I'll find a home somewhere. I think that's part of it. The second thing is the way that you onboard leaders, you know, first I have them shadow me and I dictate things to them very often. So they understand how I think and they get kind of like an understanding of my thought process, how I handle things. And then step two is I start to ask them, well, what would you do? And I start to see how they think right? Has their thinking meshed with my thinking? Do they have better ideas than me? Are they thinking creatively? Is their experience lending itself to the situation? And once I like the way that they think 80% of the time, then I'm like, okay, you do it. With an assignation of, you know, key metrics that they need to hit and a watchful eye. And then I spot check. I love it. I love it. So now how have you been able to like, what's that transition look now that we're in a lot more of a virtual setting? How is that onboarding and shadowing process? How has that pivoted from a, a traditional, like they're in the office with you? Yeah, I think this is the biggest problem I've had with all my businesses in the last few years, right? Like I've always had remote businesses. I have teams in office, right? That's especially in Ukraine. I built out a wonderful company in Ukraine which obviously got messed up by the war, but we had like 45 people in the office, right? Awesome efficiency, great HR, English lessons, great team culture. And it's mainly devs and designers and and, thing, and data analysts, things like this. And that was just great to have everybody in one spot. So I'm remote, but they're in a location. And then you have the people that started out in an office and then became remote and they work fine. The problem that I have not been able to crack, and I I think it's a problem for every business at this point, is the learnings that take place at the lunch table, at happy hour, those work conversations where I'm talking to Landon and you over here and you learn about the business so hard in this world. What I do, and I know it's annoying for my leaders in the beginning is I just pull them in on every one of my Zoom calls. Like they get no work done. I'm like, hop on this call, hop on this call, hop on this call. So it's almost like they're sitting next to me all day. We go through spreadsheets together. Like I've been onboarding chief revenue officer. who's amazing. And for like, dude, the first month we were together, like almost 24 hours a day because Zoom was always open and she was on every call to kind of learn what the business is, is, is happening. And that's the only way that I've found to really get someone to hear everything and see everything is keep them open on Zoom. I love it. Now, tell us a little bit more about that nuance from a high-level perspective, the nuance that it requires when you're having businesses overseas, how to deal with language barriers, how to deal with currency di- differences, like how does the money flow back to you, all that stuff, how to build leaders that you're not always present there. So tell us a little bit more about that dynamic. The success that I've had in foreign corporations or owning foreign businesses is always having a local partner that I have a lot of trust in because there's a locality issue that you're going to always have a problem overcoming. And if it's not language, it's cultural, it's banking systems, the structure for employees, like employing someone in Israel, employing someone in the United States and employing someone in Ukraine 
It's just completely different the way that their structures are set up, not just from a financial point of view or a tax point of view, but just even like HR. Like in Israel, when you want to fire somebody, you have to have a shimua, which is basically where you sit with them and give them an opportunity to change. And it's a quasi formal thing. Like they can bring a lawyer, right? But you have like a process like this where in Ukraine, you can just terminate. No problem. There's no fallback. Like there's just so many differences like that. So for me, having a partner in that place that I truly trust is paramount. And then there's the acceptance of the decreased cost uh, with decreased efficiency because of language barrier and other mistakes. Like you just need to work around it and make sure you're still coming out on the, on the other side and setting up, you know, a good example is my video team in Ukraine is, I think, one of the best video teams on earth with their level of creativity, et cetera, et cetera. Spelling in the ads, it's not going to happen correctly ever. So, okay, I need to hire someone in America to spot check all their work. When I add up the cost of spot checking versus the decreased cost of labor, it's still much more profitable. And people in other countries work harder than lazy Americans. It's not just that they're cheaper. They appreciate the opportunity and they hustle and grind because they understand the value of a job, especially, you know, paying them, you know, 30, 40% better than the going wage when you find somebody good, still quite profitable investment for me, but, you know, a, a big plus for them. So I think that finding the right people, accepting the fact you're not going to get perfection, accepting the fact it's going to be slower because of time zone differences, but seeing it for what it is. It's really the only way to go. If you expect it to be the same quality as America, and I don't mean work product, but I mean like working experience, you're going to get super frustrated. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well said on all that stuff, man. So where where does GeekX fall into all this? Yeah, GeekX is the one that is the most personal to me because a lot of the marketing that I do is faceless. You know, I run ads all around the world. I never see the people on the other end of the transaction on their screen, right? And GeekX, I get to actually talk and meet the people that are my tickets, right? Like I can see their name come in as a ticket and then I get to meet them in person and it's really interesting. GeekX has been powerful for me from a network point of view because it has brought forward, you know, like-minded entrepreneurial people is really who it attracts with common interests in marketing, common goals as me, and a, and a chance to kind of uh, remove that isolation from my desk to, hey, there's a bunch of other really great, smart people out of there doing different things. You know, they might, they might be doing Facebook ads, but they're doing Facebook ads for something completely different than me. And because it's a digital business, they've also usually built cool structures, contractions of how they manage labor. And it's just like constant learning because it's not like I'm going to a conference of other carpenters, right? And they basically follow a lot of the same structure because it's marketing and we share this, but the thing that catches the marketing, the offer, if it's a lead generation officer, it's an e-com product, an information product, it's so different. It gives me the opportunity to get insights into different business models. So I, I enjoy the interaction. And so in a nutshell for our listeners, what is GeekX? Just so for the folks that don't yeah. know. Yeah. GeekX was created and is a place for people that are like passionately obsessed about marketing to get together. A lot of people that are in this marketing field, 
people don't understand what we do. Family doesn't understand. We're obsessive about it. It's an obsessive, you know, pursuit. So it's an opportunity for people to get together and really like talk shop, like high level people get a chance to talk shop. We see people opening up laptops, showing each other what's going on with their campaigns and how does this work and how does this work? Because at the end of the day, we're all united in the fact that we're trying to slay the dragon that is Facebook or is Google or is TikToks. I mean, these are monolithic marketing companies that do not have the best client support and they're all based on algorithms and auction systems. So it allows us to kind of get together, potentially figure out how to crack the algorithm, hack the algorithm and just kind of slay the dragon. It's, it's almost the audience is almost all entrepreneurs and it's usually centered around people that are utilizing marketing for their business or are marketing for someone else's business. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important to have community. Cause like, inside of specific industries like marketing or like on our end on the finance side like it's a different language man like i i know a lot of the marketing stuff but i don't i i realize i don't know shit when i went to geekx man it's a different language that you guys are speaking so I completely understand how like how can your family relate to that how can your normal friends relate to that you need a community of people that can really relate or else you're just gonna go insane so, so that, that's so, awesome man so yeah and you're exactly. not gonna you know because the the like when I speak to people like you, right? And let's say it's finance people. You guys have all these shortened names, acronyms, and it's like an assumed understanding that I understand what you understand and vice versa, you understand what I understand. And it kind of makes the information acquisition process slower to get into our brains as opposed to when you speak to other people that speak the same language, there's no time interruption to figure shit out. Like I know exactly what this guy is talking about. He knows what I'm talking about and it makes like a really fast connection. And also speaking back to like the remote nature of the business. When we really scaled GeekX, it was during the pandemic, nobody was doing events. And we said, we're going to do events. We're going to do them in Florida. We're going to do them in Texas. We're going to do them overseas because people still want to connect. And I learned something very interesting. You know, normally you have an event and you do like, let's say education during the day, or you have a welcome dinner, whatever the case may be. And a welcome dinner, everyone's 30, 45 minutes late. No one really gives a shit. They're just like, I'll grab some food before I go out and party. When we did this during the pandemic, or when we did this in Dubai, after the lockdowns had ended for Europe and Australia, when people finally got together, everyone was early for that dinner and we couldn't get them to eat because they wouldn't stop talking. Like they they were dying to connect. Like I really saw something in regards to human nature. And that's what that, that community provides. I have an online community. It's unbelievable. It's hosted on Slack. The connection is great as best as we can. But when people get together in person and as humans, they connect not over Zoom, but like we can see each other, smell each other, read body language, all this. It's just such a deeper level of connection for relationships. And essentially relationships is what makes us all money. I still fly in person from almost all big deals. I still fly and sit with the people in person at their house, at their office and become part of them. Because I think that's going to beat me, was going to help me beat my competitors out is that I have like a personal connected relationship. So I went off on a tangent there, but. No, you're good, man. Awesome. So, so as we near the wrap up here, tell us the vision. What's, what's the next five, 10 years hold for James? Hopefully massive wealth and always winning the game. That's my everyday struggle. Look, I hope that I have like really nice consistency in my pursuits and don't go up and down when times are good and times are bad. Look, I obviously have goals, but I think that 
the goal of consistency, which is, you know, consistency wins the name of your podcast is really the key. If I can just stay on a very healthy, measured attack while I play the game, I think this is the way to do it. When Elon Musk became the richest guy in the world and he posted on Twitter, okay, that's great. Back to work. That kind of like summed up what I want the rest of my, you know, my work life to be like, where it's just, I'm going to keep grinding. I'm going to keep enjoying and I'm going to hit high scores. That's cool. I'm going to hit really rough patches. That's cool. But I, I really hope that, you know, 10 years from now, I'm still working and I'm still enjoying it. I love it. I love, I love it. that. So you actually filled the blank on the question that we, that one of the questions we ask is like, you know, what does consistency mean to you and how does it show up in your life? So appreciate you kind of, kind of and flowing right. right into it. Yeah. Consistency is everything because variance, like you have data variance. You have a week, five things go bad and then you don't notice it, but the following week it goes great and then it goes great again and then it goes bad. And it's just literally statistical variance. Like it's just the way life is. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. But if you just keep hitting it every day, those blips start to kind of normalize and you don't give a shit. Now when a bunch of stuff goes bad, I'm like, whatever, my good week is coming up, you know, and I think consistency is the way to get over that kind of emotional roller coaster. I love it. Let's go. James, how can everyone follow you? How can they connect with you? How can we? Yeah, I'm very bad at this. I'm not on socials at all. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. I never check on it. If you have something interesting and you actually want to reach out, you can hit me up at my email, james at purpleweeds.com. And I'm pretty good about answering emails in two to three days, depending on the priority of what I'm working on. But I would say that's the most effective way that I'm actually going to see it. And I'm pretty good. Like if people hit me up and ask me questions or whatever, I'm pretty good at responding. Occasionally, one out of 20, one out of 30 times, I'll hop on a quick call to answer a question for somebody, but I'm pretty good about answering the emails. Awesome. Well, James, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for the opportunity to speak at GeekX and we look forward to continuing to connect. Thank you for the invitation, gentlemen. Have a wonderful day.